It isn't only the British accent in today's conversation that makes Luke Brotherton, professor of moral and political theology at Duke Divinity School, so enjoyable to listen to. It's that his words aren't just smart, but wise, much like his latest book, Christ and the Common Life, Political Theology and the Case for Democracy. Luke argues that our politics are infused with a kind of religious nature, and also that religion is impacted by politics, from its use of power on down. In a free society, what's the deeper relationship between religion and democracy? By contrast, what are the roots, on both left and right, of today's ongoing, almost centrifugal pull toward illiberalism? How is it that religious faith affiliation can sometimes function as a form of identity politics? And on the other hand, how can genuine faith eschew pride, sin, and other effusive forms of political intolerance? Of our two guests, Luke is new to Faith Angle's Orbit, so to briefly introduce him to you, Luke Bretherton not only teaches a full course load, but is also a senior fellow at the Kennan Institute for Ethics at Duke Divinity School. His podcast, linked in the show notes, is called Listen, Organize, Act. A Christian professor, Luke is joined today by a regular at Faith Angle, Shadi Hamid, author of four books, a foreign policy scholar at Brookings, a contributing writer at The Atlantic, a podcast co-host at Wisdom of Crowds, and a Faith Angle advisor and recent speaker. Shadi is Muslim, and yet has grown increasingly familiar in recent months with the late 19th century Dutch Prime Minister, Abraham Kuyper, applying Kuyper's conviction around Dutch pillarization and equitable public pluralism to today's American context. Last March, Shadi published a widely read piece in The Atlantic, which flagged a new Gallup poll showing that for the first time in 80 years, the number of Americans belonging to a house of worship has fallen below 50%. In 1999, 70% of American households reported that they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque. In 2020, that number fell to 47%, and among millennials to just 36%. What's this mean? Shadi and Luke answer that question, not only with faith in mind, but on cultural and political fronts, flagging that this reshuffling impacts American public life, even if not in the way religious citizens might think. So sit in for a rich conversation between two intellectual heavyweights considering today the flow of history, academic versus real-world motivations, political eschatology, and how we make meaning through mediating institutions, not just as wards of the state or as autonomous individuals. These scholar practitioners differ on some issues, but share the conviction that we'll better work together across differences from thick communities, not just thin association. Enjoy the conversation. So I guess I have the honor of offering up the opening question for this conversation. Luke, you know, we've just met for the first time visually. Maybe a good way to start the conversation is with some of the recent trends about Christianity's decline that I think a lot of us have been talking about and thinking about in recent months in light of the Gallup survey that came out. And, you know, for listeners who aren't aware, in the early 2000s, church membership was still hovering around 70%, and it had for many decades. It had stayed fairly constant since Gallup started even tracking it in the 1930s, I believe. And then in the last 20, 21 years, 
something happened and for the first time uh, church membership has dropped below 50 percent obviously among christians there's consternation that this would be the case that it the secularization that we all knew was happening seems to be even more rapid than we expected and i think that that provides an interesting subtext for a lot of the let's say polarization and anger that we're seeing in our politics being here in washington dc I see it every day, but also I also see it on Twitter. And one argument that I've made in my work is that be careful what you wish for, that many secularists may have hoped that the secularization process would lead to a more rational politics, a more tolerant politics that does not seem to be the case. One might argue that the opposite has happened, that ideological polarization and fragmentation has actually increased. We feel it a lot here at the center of our politics and the debates that we have between the two parties. I'd be curious, Luke, you know, you come at this from a different vantage point. You're at Duke Divinity School. My sense is that you're not on Twitter as much as, say, I am, (laughs) which is probably good for your health. But it also probably means that you're able to maybe escape, I think, the very negative tenor for people who are, like, just in this world. And also, you have to deal with students for better or worse, and I don't know how much Duke has had the same debates around what might be called secular religion. Maybe we can even debate whether that's a good way of talking about wokeism. I would say that wokeism, it's religious in the sense of it's, it mimics the certainty and conviction of traditional religion, but without the substantive aspects of forgiveness, grace, redemption. So in some sense, it's not the worst of both worlds, that might not be the best way to put it, but it takes something good, conviction and commitment, but in the service, let's say, of a false god, to be maybe a little bit polemical there. But just that's a lot that I've just put out there. So, Luke. <laughs> Thank you. That, my, I think my uh, university somehow wants me more on Twitter, which is, I will take this as an admonition to resist. So, no, those are great questions, and, and let me unpack some of that and then come back to me. I think I'd want to resist reading the Gallup poll through a sociological lens which tells a story about how when we become more modern, i.e. when we get industrialized, live in cities, have bureaucracies, have things like social media, we inherently become less religious. And this has been the kind of standard story sociologists is told since the since the days of Durkheim and, and Max Weber and other kind of sociological great figures. And this generally called the kind of secularization thesis, the idea that to be modern is somehow incompatible with being religious. And I think that was the general tenor of most media coverage of the Gallup poll, because that is a fixed, idee fix, if you like, in the minds of most of my colleagues in the academy and most journalists who've been through elite institutions like Duke or Harvard or Haverford College or wherever it is, because that's the dominant narrative in those places. I think it's a kind of magical thinking, to put it very bluntly, and I don't think the empirical evidence has borne that out. And your own work, Chadi, is attentive to this that's obviously a narrative which can't play out in somewhere like the Middle East, or we can think about post-89 Russia and the former Soviet states where we see a massive rise in religion. So how should we read this 
Gallup poll and what sense do we make of it? And I think here, and, and this is drawing on the work of someone like Daniel Hevu Leger, who's a French sociologist, who says the issue is not so much people, modernity equals inherent or inevitable decline in religion. It's much more the issue is two things. One is pluralization. We live in a more plural society. And that is obviously now globalized as well. So, for instance, you know, I might write a Freudian reading of the Bhagavad Gita and think that's my my little cubby hole in some corner of the academy. That's just an interesting thing to do. Unfortunately, it appears on Amazon.com and some people in southern India get hold of it and start issuing death threats. And so the sense of the plurality of views is much more present to us, particularly in a kind of internet age. The other factor, I think, is deinstitutionalization. We went through modernity equaled a kind of moment of extraordinary institution building, whether it was municipal works to sort out potable water, political parties, denominational structures, the modern university, public libraries. From about 1780 to about 1930, we built institutions, that's, that was a kind of modern phenomenon. And then we stopped, and now we're kind of exiting institutions. And that's not just churches, trade unions, political parties. Every PTA group struggled to recruit, you know, why should I turn up on a rainy Thursday to do Robert's rules for some dull meeting? We've lost an institutional imagination. And what happens to religion in, when it gets deinstitutionalized is it turns up everywhere. So a Trump rally is a religious phenomenon. A Biden rally is a religious phenomenon. We football matches, soccer matches in the UK context or American football matches. And that kind of notion of uh, collective identity, vehement commitment, the sense of transcending the self, a sense of purpose beyond the self, the kinds of things religion does is turning up in all sorts of places. And these are places in which it's unmediated by institutionalized ways of structuring belief and practice. So, I mean, a good example of this is in a former colleague of mine at King's did interesting work on what happens to Islam in second, third generation migrant communities in Britain. And there, what it meant to be a faithful Muslim was no longer dictated by participation in the mosque, it was what people got off the internet. And so he was interestingly interviewing a father who was wearing traditional Kashmiri dress and his son who was wearing Arabic clothes. And the son was saying, well, my dad's not a real Muslim. He's kind of folk Islam, whereas I am, and that's reflected in my dress and how I clothe myself. And of course, not kind of recognizing that that itself was a cultural phenomena, but somehow received wisdom that this is what real Muslims do. And we see versions of that in Christianity and Judaism and, and, and across the board. And so I think this polarization is partly a feature of the deinstitutionalization that we see more broadly. Um, and then how religious belief gets unhooked from uh, ways it's disciplined through institutional forms of mediation. And so um, I would take a phenomenon like Christian nationalism. It used to be the case you could talk about Germany as a Lutheran and Catholic country or Sweden as a Lutheran country or Britain as an Anglican country or Spain as a Catholic country or Brazil as a Catholic country. In the notion that you have a Catholic nation, 
you've got the sense that what it means, the national identity is accountable to very specific forms of belief and practice. When we talk about a Christian nation or even a Judeo-Christian nation, as often is talked about in, in American context, this has become a kind of vague, slightly, fo- it's trying to unzip fog, trying to meet what that actually means. And it's, as we've seen in some figures, it's probably more used by people who don't go to church on a regular basis than people who do. And so that sense that one's religious belief and practice, it's no longer anchored in actual belief and practice. It's a form of identity politics. It's a mode through which you kind of situate yourself in the world, but wholly unaccountable to any actual belief and practice or ethical content or political commitments. And if I try and talk to some folk who've got kind of Christian nationalist commitments and have a conversation about Augustine, they look at me very strangely. And what's that got to do with anything? And why on earth should I take Augustine seriously as an authority figure? It's, it's what I feel is right. And this is about who I am and my friends and family and what we're committed to. And so I think that is this phenomenon. But I think that relates more broadly to a kind of political culture at the moment. And we see reactions against that. And so one of the extraordinary things of my kind of existence here is I I never thought I'd have, this connects into your comment about the kind of woke being religion, but I I never thought I would have conversations with students about the difference between anarcho-syndicalism and anarcho-communism and fiercely fought debates about very obscure left-wing historical moments and what was platforming is against syndicalism and this kind of stuff. But I think that's part of this reaction. And, you know, the internet, as much as Spotify makes available every genre of music ever made, the internet also makes available every shade of political opinion and its intercenine rivalries ever had. And in kind of reaction against a deinstitutionalization, people clutch for things to locate themselves and take from the internet these very fiercely fought modes and, and get very committed and vehement about, you know, the kind of narcissism of small differences. And we see that particularly on the left, but I think you see it on the right as, as well, this phenomenon. So that would be a kind of something of my initial response to what we say is the issue here. And just to end with a kind of analogy, I think the standard narrative used to be that there was a, a shower the processes of modernization. We wanted men and women and good kind of thought leaders and political party members would encourage people to enter into this shower of rationalization and and people would be washed clean of the foul accretions of their superstition and religion and stuff and emerge enlightened men and women able to operate properly in the marketplace and in in citizens. Turns out we're not in a shower, we're in a jacuzzi and everything's bubbling up from everywhere And as whether you're Richard Dawkins, a confessional atheist, or Jerry Fowler Jr., you see the world isn't going your way and that your view of things isn't normal and is highly contested and you've got to defend it in a vehement, zealot-like manner for it to exist in the world. And I think that's the phenomenon. It's less polarization than a jacuzzi-like hyper-pluralization where unfortunately we all have to sit together in a slightly fetid and warm waters of that cultural context. I wonder, Luke, if you would maybe, Shadi, too, dilate a little bit on this concept of the imploding religious commitment and its consequence. Is that something that has especially deleterious 
impacts when it comes to politics, when it comes to our public life? Does the fact of less institutional commitment in the churches, as Shadi was describing earlier in the last 20 years, bear itself out uniquely badly in the jacuzzi of our politics or the jacuzzi of our public life? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think one of the things that would be interesting what Shadi says about this, I mean, I think one way that manifests itself is, well, two two very concrete things. And I'll just speak at, about this from a kind of Christian and church-based perspective in the American context. If I'm going to church regularly and saying the confession that I'm a sinner, that I think has a kind of epistemic, is a horrible kind of epistemic value, the sense that I am not the be-all and end-all of everything. I didn't create myself and I don't create the world. And Reinhold Niebuhr, a great kind of public theologian of the 20th century, kind of made this point about the importance of a democracy of humility and the sense that to be confronted with an absolute or transcendent horizon and the sense that there's a life beyond this one means that politics is free to be penultimate. And I think one of the problems we've got is in the loss of a regular imbibing of an ultimate horizon beyond politics and economics, we make politics and economics the only horizon, and so it has to serve up the full measure of meaning and purpose. And so we turn all political projects, whether of the left or the right, into salvation projects. And so I think the particular problem here is, and we see it's a horrible, horrible phrase, I'm on the right side of history. It's a terrible philosophy of history that goes back to Hegel and weaponized by Marx. But this sense of, and I'll tell a terrible joke here, borrowed from a friend of mine, he says, when I hear someone describe themselves as progressive, I always think of what you don't want to hear when you go to the doctor. I'm sorry, Dr. Bretherton, it's progressive, i.e. you're going to die very quickly in a rather ugly and painful way, which is tend to what I think about progressive when people describe themselves as progressive. And I mean, that's basically based on this philosophy of history, that history is heading in one direction, we know what direction it is, and we can make determinate judgments about who is and who is not on the right side of history. As I said, there's a, there's a philosophy of history that goes back to Hegel and stuff. But, but this sense of that I know which way history is going. And if I compromise on what I'm on any political position, however trivial, I'm somehow compromising the end of history. And so when I disagree with someone, it's no longer a penultimate disagreement about tax differential policies. It's a disagreement that is about the end of history. And to compromise on that is to threaten the right outcome of history. And so when I disagree with someone, it's not a political, in a penultimate sense, in a kind of prudential judgment sense. It's actually the other who I'm disagreeing is making a metaphysical mistake. And so there can be no compromise. If I'm, And so I think that is a major development, these terrible philosophies of history that are out there of distorting our ability to have meaningful political debates because we're not having political debates, we're having metaphysical debates, and that's a disaster for politics. And this, I think, is where religion becomes important in a way that often isn't acknowledged by secular folks, that there is this kind of trope that religion fuels absolutist ways of thinking, that there's something about religion that is fundamentally zero-sum, but, you know, similar to what you were saying, Luke, and I'm very much uh, influenced, I'm the odd Muslim who is very much influenced by 
a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper. Josh will know that I endlessly bring up Kuyper. So for those of you who've heard me with my Kuyper spiel, please bear with me. <laughs> That's why but, he's back. I need to listen to more, more recordings. Of other. <laughs> it's wonderfully obtuse. Uh, I love it. It's like, but I, I, I read that, I was like, who else reads Kuyper and Doivet? This is an amazing thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, so Kuyper, I would say is, the preeminent exponent of what might be called Christian pluralism, and coming from a Dutch context where questions of pluralism were very much front and center because it had become a divided society in the 19th century between Catholics, Calvinists, socialists, and liberals. And the educational system was a primary battleground of who would be able to control the future generations and basically educate them into good liberals. And I mean, ultimately, that's kind of what happened is that over time, that is the direction that education went in, not just in the Netherlands, but throughout Europe. And obviously, we have a debate here in the US about this today, <laughs> to some degree. But I think that the Kuyperian approach and one that has, it really resonates with me, because if you sort of take it fully, it can change how you view politics on a daily basis. It can actually, I mean, not to be dramatic here, it can actually change your life. But basically, you know, at the center of this is the idea of suspending or postponing judgment. The idea that we as humans are sinners that until the return of Christ, there is a kind of inherent imperfection that is part of the human condition. And to kind of try to be perfect or to think that we can transcend in that way is actually a violation of God's sovereignty because it makes humans into something that they're not. And so this idea of being humble about what we can know in this world because we are all broken by sin and to kind of embrace this idea of brokenness should in theory lead to a kind of epistemological humility about what we can know. So we don't have access to absolute truth. We can try and we can search, but there are going to be fundamental limits. So I think this is a, it's a really helpful way of looking at the world, regardless if you're Christian or not. There's also, I would argue, precedents in Islam that are not exactly the same, but similar at least. Because what that means basically is that you can postpone judgments until the next life. Granted, if you don't believe in a next life, this becomes a little bit more complicated, but this is where I think we don't want to necessarily encourage people to stop believing in an afterlife. I, I think oftentimes when I tell people that I believe in something after this life, my more secular friends, they're like, Shadi, wait, we've heard you say this before, but is it just like a metaphor? Are you just saying that as a kind of indication, or do you actually believe that this is a physical reality and something that will actually happen? They're like, oh, you're Shetty, you're, you're so smart. You're so intellectual. You seem rational. You, you really believe that. And I think that this kind of disdain for the idea of an afterlife, even among people who are otherwise like nominal Christians, you'll find that if you sometimes push nominal Christians on this, they'll kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable because we live in a society that doesn't actually value these things when actually the idea of a Dex life can actually contribute quite a lot to intellectual and religious pluralism, because it means that God is the final judge. We as humans don't need to feel too much urgency to judge in the here and now. And so ultimately, we're able to postpone judgment. 
And you can be a secular person and even a non-believing person, and I think take some of these ideals and apply them to your own political vision. And I think that we have to learn ways to model that in how we talk to each other. It's hard, obviously, because I mean, I there's times when I'm on Twitter and I'm like, this person's saying something so dumb, and I feel this kind of outrage building inside of me. And to learn how to sense that that's kind of building in your body and to find ways to okay, this is just one moment. This is not particularly important. We all fail in different ways. We're all sinners, and this person probably maybe is well-intentioned, but ends up having a really bad idea. I've probably ended up having really bad ideas, probably not as often, to be sure, but <laughs> still. The idea of like the theology actually informing how we engage in public life is something that I think some people get scared by, those evangelicals or whoever it is, you know, seriously, they're going to bring that into their politics. But what you're describing of theological, you know, humility and curiosity and a sense of postponed judgment, I'm sure I'll botch the Arabic, but your phrase about Allah, Wada, Yulam, something like oh, that. Oh, Allah, Yes, yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, about only God knows. Yeah, yeah. It sort of tempers, it, it characterizes your, uh, how do you see that, Luke? Because you're teaching divinity school students about politics. Right. <laughs> well, I just just to want to riff off something Charlie said there, and this builds on the kind of Corpyrian point, I think very, very significant of, of how a kind of transcendent or broader horizon, or we might say in Christian terms, an eschatological horizon, renders politics possible. But I think crucial to Kuiper's insight was that it's not just the demand for a certain humility, because we can't know everything and be everywhere. We're finite and fallen creatures. But also this deep commitment to an institutional plurality and to the importance of having people fully display and have institutionalized their thick commitments, religious or otherwise. And this helpful contrast here is someone like John Rawls, hugely influential on kind of American liberalism, the kind of philosopher in, in a sense of the past 40, 50 years. And Rawls is famously in his framework for understanding what it means to do good politics is that you have to suspend or put in the background your comprehensive doctrines, whether communist or Christian or Islamic or whatever. It doesn't, doesn't have to be religious, but religion was the particular one he was concerned about. And also that we should somehow cultivate, and you see this in philosophers like Amy Goodman and others, deliberative Democrats, cultivate a certain skepticism towards our thick and cherished beliefs. And Christians like Nicholas Waltersdorf and others have kind of reacted against this, building out of Kuiper and others' framework. And, and here I think Kuiper is an interesting contrast. He wants people to fully own their comprehensive doctrines as communists, as socialists, as secular humanists, as Catholics, as Muslims or whoever. And that that commitment drives, and people have different commitments for and different stories to tell about why we should live together in this place, in his case, the Netherlands, but also that then that needs institutionalizing, that there needs to be schools, there needs to be radio stations through which people can cultivate those thick and cherished beliefs. And I think that's a very different understanding. There's a different anthropology there, the, the, the sense that I can only come to fully express my humanity, my personhood, through being embedded in some kind of 
might, might say civil society or some kind of civic association independent of the state and beyond the family. And I think that's where liberalism actually is deeply opposed to that idea. If, if we're just individuals and we're just aggregating individual choices, whether in the market or through democracy, then you don't want an institutional plurality and you don't want people expressing thick, comprehensive doctrines in public. You just want individuals operating through some watered-down shared rationality, and that's kind of Rawls's approach. And I think this is a, really a fundamental different vision of liberal democracy. And you see it not just in the kind of pillar structure that emerged in the Netherlands, but also you see it in Christian democratic parties coming out of the work of Jacques Maritain and others who I think, again, offered this more associational, institution-rich and mediated vision of liberal democracy, which I think hasn't had much airtime in America. But obviously, it's been the most successful post-war in Europe, most successful post-war political parties across Europe, Germany, Netherlands, Italy and places. But so I think there, this isn't just pie in the sky, like this has generated concrete political programs, which have a very different vision of institutional plurality, and the importance of associations to human flourishing. And I think it's interesting to think about what are the an analogs to that in Islam, and other religious, and I think they are, they are there. But they don't show up to a kind of dominant cast of mind, which can only think of liberalism and democracy in terms of the individual and the state and can't imagine the, the importance and, and tends to see thick forms of alternative institutional embodiment, whether that's a communist commune or a, a Mormon settlement or whatever it is, as a threat to the individual and to the liberal state. And so I think that is a pretty fundamental conflict we're in. Now, I, I'm not sure the world of Twitter can go encompass that because it, again, it only works through its very mode of operating, how whatever the views expressed are a mode of aggregating individual sentiment and choices. And so we might have different views, but the actual what we experience on Twitter is a reinscription of a certain kind of liberal anthropology. So, you know, one thing that I saw quite a lot of when I was living in the Middle East, and I, at the time, I thought it was primarily a Middle Eastern problem which is basically, quite simply, that citizens see their fellow citizens in a particular country as an existential threat. So you have two things. You have ideological pluralism, which grows in the modern era because people have access to different sources of information. More ideas become available. So, for example, secularism wasn't an ideological option for Muslims really until the 19th century. And for most Muslims, they weren't exposed to secular or liberal ideas until the 20th century. That is really a striking shift when there was a really, really only one ideological or intellectual framework, which was Islam. And it imbued everything to such an extent that it was unquestioned. It was just in the air, really. And for that to be challenged, obviously, you have an ideological breach of some sort. So what we have now, what we had, so during the Arab Spring, when I was in, in the region, I saw existential politics. And because there was ideological pluralism, that meant you had an untenable situation because you had these different ideological factions and they each thought that the other would destroy them if the other came to power. Now, 
I used to contrast that with the American experience because I was, I suppose, naive, where I thought that we had resolved to some extent, or at least to a sufficient degree, the foundational questions. We were all American. We believed in the American idea. We disagreed on what that idea actually meant in practice, but we did kind of go back to the founding. We respected the founding documents. We believed in them, so on and so forth. I come back to the U.S. in 2014, and then I start to see my own country here shifting. And I'm like, wow, I've seen this before. This actually reminds me of the Middle East, where people aren't debating policy. They're debating foundational questions about the nature of the state or the nature of the country's identity. It's become a universal affliction. So we see this in the Philippines, in Brazil, in Poland, in Hungary, in France. I mean, you name it, you you know, policy just seems like no one was debating for them, as far as I can tell, debating between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016. And we're like, oh, let me look at their comparable political programs and see who has the policies that I prefer. No, that's not how that, and that was an election that I think for a lot of us for the first time in our own country here in the U.S., we felt, oh, this is a little bit of a different tenor of politics. And then obviously 2020 was a continuation of that, that democracy was under threat and how we vote will essentially entail whether American democracy survives or whether it might very well die. So I think that the question of how we get around existential politics you see it in Muslim-majority countries, and increasingly you see it now here in the U.S. and also to various degrees in European countries. And I think that's really the question that every American has to grapple with, and everyone will have like a different individual answer to how they deal with it. I think that part of the solution has to be that, which I think is becoming more and more difficult, is to say that as few people as possible who are American citizens are beyond the pale. That's what we have to be able to say. And what what worries me is I think you hear more and more progressives basically saying that 45% of our fellow Americans are effectively beyond the pale. The 74 million Trump voters are in effect, by definition, racist or do not believe in democracy or supported the overturning of the democratic outcome. And that makes it very hard to live with your fellow citizens if you're perpetually seeing people who voted for the other party as people who might destroy your country. That's just simply unsustainable. So my preference would be to say, hey, a lot of Trump voters, they have bad ideas. Yes. Are they evil? No. Are they irredeemable? No. Are they deplorable? For the most part, no. (laughs) And that, look, maybe there are 2% of Americans who are overt actual white supremacists who are irredeemable in some sense because they might believe in even political violence or overthrowing the U.S. government, whatever it might be. There are some things that we can say, here's the line. But I think we have to be careful about defining that line so it doesn't actually basically excommunicate millions of Americans. We have to be careful about that. But it's difficult to figure out what the political program is that actually encourages people to look at their fellow Americans as people who are maybe maybe have bad ideas or ideas that you can disagree with, but ultimately they are American citizens and we have to respect that and they have the right to vote and they have the right to vote for Donald Trump, so on and so forth. And I worry about the post-January 6th environment and we're having a lot of discussion 
about how we remember January 6th. And I think, obviously, it was a terrible day. But to use the memory of that day to basically say that these are domestic enemies, writ large, Trump supporters are domestic enemies that are a threat to the American state, that is not the kind of language that I ever expected to hear in the U.S. I heard that language in Arab countries during the Arab Spring, and we saw what happened, and we that's a little bit of a different conversation about why it turned out that way in these Muslim-majority countries. But we should be aware of how that kind of way of looking at divisions within a society, it has no end. I want to pick up a little bit on what, something what Shahidi said in there about existential politics, which is a great phrase. I think we're in a tricky dance we're in a moment when really fundamental questions have to be asked about what it means to be human. And we're in this process, you know, what is the human relationship to the planet when we can manipulate genes and rewire what it means to be human at a DNA level? We're also asking fundamental questions about what it means to be human when technology is being placed in our bodies and we're having algorithms make decisions and all sorts of levels from military decisions to credit score decisions. That's reshaping fundamental aspects of social life together. Questions about what does it mean to be gendered man, gendered woman? You know, So these really fundamental questions are up for grabs. So we shouldn't be surprised that we have an existential politics. I'm kind of more sympathetic, I think, than Shadi to this moment. We're facing these questions partly because of changes in economics and technology and broader political processes and cultural demographic processes. So we can't duck those questions and somehow go, why are we all polarized? It's like, no, no, no. we should be asking fundamental questions of meaning and purpose. The trick is how do we do, what's our vision of politics as a common life, as a way of sustaining and navigating a common life? And how do we handle existential questions while not killing, coercing, or causing others to flee. And that's a tricky dance. Like, that, like humans are not very good at that. <laughs> so, and I think a parallel moment, if we think about the 1920s and 30s, which I think is a parallel moment to ours, we had a similar highly polarized politics. The metabolizing of major social changes, industrialization, urbanization, the creation of the modern state, these were massive changes through the 19th century which society really struggled, huge shift from the rural to the urban. Societies were struggling to cope with fundamental changes in family structures as the creation of the kind of modern household of privatization of the household is against people working above the shop. Massive changes, social changes and political and economic changes. How were we, we weren't very good at metabolizing those and massive arguments arose. Should we have more market as the way of solving that? Should we have more state? Communism, fascism, these were all reactions against those massive social shifts. We came up with a set of answers, broadly speaking, fought two world wars, got through various totalitarian regimes. And by about 1950, most of Western Europe and the Americas had kind of come up with a settled answers. And there was a question of a little bit more state here and a little bit more market there. That settlement has come unstuck. We're in a similar moment of having to metabolize huge social changes that are affecting every aspect of life and the questions of the future. The question for us is, do we have to go through another bout of world wars 
you know, whether it's with China or whatever, and another bout of various forms of totalitarianism to come up to a new settlement. And I think, so the stakes are high. We shouldn't pull any punches about how high the stakes are across the world. The question is, what constructive vision of politics enables us to handle those fundamental disagreements in a way that we don't end up killing, coercing, or causing others to flee? Yeah, and, and similarly, I mean, I think we should definitely be asking the existential questions. They're existential for a reason because they're very important and we can't escape them. But I think there has to be a way to ask existential questions without having an existential politics. To me, right. that is the right combination. And I think what that requires is an acknowledgement, however grudging, that we're not going to be able to resolve the existential questions. So one faction is not going to be able to conclusively defeat the other. And this is where I think, Luke, your point about progressives and the end of history is important. They believe that all foundational questions have been resolved, and it's just a matter of implementing them. And that's not going to fly because unless they can persuade enough of their fellow Americans to get on board, which they probably won't, you're still going to have different groups in society that don't agree on some of those existential questions, whether about race, gender, the American founding, so on and so forth. So it seems to me that the only real sustainable option is a kind of de facto pillarization model, or let's just say a rich and somewhat frightening pluralism where all these views coexist and we agree to fight for those views peacefully through the democratic process. Now, what that requires is respecting democratic outcomes. And I think a lot of this falls apart if you have one faction or even both that say, we only like democracy when it produces the outcomes that are in alignment with our ideological preferences. And to me, that seems to be the direction that many societies are going in. And I've sort of unfortunately come to the conclusion that very few people are truly small d Democrats. People tend to have difficulty with the idea of democracy if it produces bad results. Maybe not one time, because you can get over that and say, oh, that was a fluke one time, but most of the other times it'll be good. But if you're someone who sees a series of quote-unquote bad outcomes, and for you the questions are existential, and that's what's at stake, then you might say, well, if democracy keeps on producing, let's say Donald Trump had won a second time, I can imagine many liberals would have said, okay, one time, maybe. But if, democ if the democratic process produces two Trump terms, then is democracy good? And I worry that Republicans now are asking similar questions, that if Democrats keep on winning key elections on the national or state level, more Republicans will say, how do we restrict democracy? I think the debate over voting rights and gerrymandering really gets to some of those questions, for example. And I think one of the things is, your point about are the answers already settled is key. And I think, yes, there is a certain kind of progressive version of that. But there's also a version of that, we might call that a more reactionary version, that it's ex perfectly expressed in Trump's phrase, make America great again, i.e. all the things we need to know about how to answer, you know, the construction of family life, economy, has already been settled in somewhere in about 1955. And we've just got to get back to being that and then we'll be truly flourishing. And so there is a kind of weaponized nostalgia that produces a reaction. And, and neither of these have a very good theory of change 
And both of them refuse highly ideological and refuse any notion of kind of practical reason or prudential judgment, which again, I think Islam, Judaism, Christianity have rich traditions of notions of prudential judgment in politics and elsewhere. And I think here, if you think about, to use a kind of framework drawn from Christian liturgy, think about a baptism. In a baptism, there is a notion that when I'm a repentant sinner and I get baptized, I both recover a self that's been lost due to sin and idolatry, but I also am given a new self. I'm born again, literally, and, and made new. And so this sense of a view of both change individually and socially, these are mapped socially, so we can either have reformation or renaissance, so you've got to go back to recover what's been lost, but also revolution, a movement forward into the new. And I think part of our politics and polarization at the moment is a cutting off of those things from each other. We either have those who say, let's all go back. Why do these people have to disturb the peace? It was all great back then. Make America great again. And all that is good and right and proper in the world lies behind us and we need to get back to it. And it's kind of a golden ageism without any recognition that that was racist and sexist and all the rest of it and highly oppressive for many people. And on the other side, just got to go forward, leave behind tradition. It's all about rupture. It's all about moving ahead. Anything that's in the past is bad and has to be left behind. And it's the bright new future. And I think that is a bifurcation, a binary. And I think in a religious framework, and particularly in a Christian framework, this sense that there's always both continuity and change. There's always both recovery and rupture. And to exist as creatures in time is always to exist on the cusp between the need for tending the gifts we receive from our ancestors and also tilling and tending in a way that it tends to what needs changing, what needs to change so that we might flourish in the way in which those answers might not be quite fit for purpose for today and changing conditions. And I think that that kind of moral and political imagination, that's what we've lost, that ability to inhabit a kind of tensional existence between continuity and change. And what we see is a kind of weaponization of either all things are about progress or all things are about recovering and defending what we fear is being lost. And neither of those are any good for actual accounts of human flourishing, which demand this kind of much more prudential, time-specific kinds of judgments about, you know, maybe this meaning and question issue we could do a little bit like this here and I could be wrong. And, and that sense of the contingency and finitude and that sense of what Shadow's talking about, like that the importance of doubt and I don't have all the answers. How do we cultivate habits and mindsets which enable people to see that not as compromise, but actually as, as a key component of discovering with these people in this place at this time, what, a more just and loving common life? What a more robust vision of human flourishing, rather than all the time reducing it to these highly brittle, shrill, ideological reductions of visions of what it means to be human, whether of the left or the right. Just a quick exit question from me to raise is your description of the sort of baptism ritual. Uh, you come out of that and then everything about power. But one of the things I liked most about your book, Luke, is that you talk about how politics emerges directly from questions of power, how power is used. And that it's actually fine and right and good 
uh, even for religious people, to think about power. In fact, every person who's listening to this podcast right now has some kind of power in her or his institutional context, right? So I, I wonder if you have a closing thought about the use of power, whether political power or power in churches where we're having all kinds of debates about woke and CRT and race right now, whether the person who is an authority at the top or whether the person who is a member of the institutions, what are the right sort of norms to be keeping in mind right now in the use of power that reflects the political vision you describe in your book? Great question. I think important to kind of make a distinction there between, so power, if we strip it down, this getting to the academy is all sorts of highly complicated and overly complicated discussions about power and whether you're into Michel Foucault or Marx or whoever. When you strip it down, power just means the ability to act. That's all it means. It's how do we act and how can I act in the world? And and so we can talk about top-down forms of command obedience or unilateral power, which is generally what most of us experience and what people when people are critiquing power and nervous about power, that's generally what they're referring to. But there's also relational power. And think about power in a family or power in a trade union or in a congregation. The more and richer relationships we have, the more we're able to act together. And the better the quality and character, we might say virtue, that shapes those relationships, the more we're able and the better and quality of our character of our agency in the world. And so I think when we're thinking about power, we need to kind of both be mindful of the abuses and misuses of command obedience, unilateral power, and there's a rich prophetic tradition uh, in Christianity and Judaism and Islam as well about critiquing that. But we also need to foster and build the quality and character of relationship, whether in our institution or others, and get organized at a, through relationship. I might not have control of the purse. I might not have control of the levers of state, but I do have friends. I can actually build friends with others and thereby act together. And we see that in all sorts of ways. Migrant communities here setting up burial societies, Korean sharing circles. These are ways of increasing the agency of people to act through acting with and for each other, which is increases their power in the world. And I think that's what enables things, social movements like the civil rights movement, the environmental movement, to get going. If we just focus on unilateral power and structures of racism or capitalism, whatever, we tend to ignore the way people can act to change the world around them. And I think therefore being attentive to conditions of relational power and what it takes to, to produce those actually we need more relational institutions we need more relational ways of doing things so that actually people can have more power in the world through relational forms of power so i think that's a lesson to be learned and i think that's where i mean i'm chatting my comments about the arab spring in in one of the analysis of what happened in egypt was you could argue muslim brotherhood had dense networks of relational power and therefore were able to act in a way in which a lot of the more secularized protested they had a kind of mobilized form of power but they weren't organized and so therefore a bunch of individuals acting as a crowd rather than thickly related able to act as a kind of people you know we can debate which way that went but it's a helpful contrast to see the difference when i think about the word power and this is maybe a different angle I think about the balance of power, how to balance power in a particular society. And 
I'm of the left. I, I guess I still self-define as left of center, even though some people question that affiliation because I'm kind of ideologically heterodox. But I still, you know, I see liberals and and center-left people as basically my side. So I feel like I have more of a responsibility to call them out and to say, hey, there's a problem on our side. And I think that liberals in the U.S. don't really understand that it can be a frightening thing to look and see that cultural and media elites and even to some degree political elites are so disproportionately liberal and there really is a domination of the culture. So if you're someone who, just an ordinary American who watches TV or goes to the movies or goes to an art exhibit, you see in all these different subtle ways how dominant the kind of liberal cultural consensus is. Cultural power matters. Now, it's interesting that under Trump, liberals, I think, didn't realize how much power cultural power actually offers, and they were longing for political power. That's what they wanted. That's what they needed. Now they have it to some degree under President Joe Biden. And I think that, I was going to say smart conservatives, but that's problematic because it implies that you know maybe most conservatives aren't smart, so you need a modifier. But I think smart conservative commentators before the election, when they would express their fears of Biden winning, they had an, a point that I think we have to take seriously, which is they feared the intertwining of cultural and political power, that if one party, if one ideological current has both of those, and it's not divided and it's not balanced, that means that conservatives in this country would increasingly find themselves basically under assault in, in really foundational ways. That's the argument. Now, we can debate that or disagree with aspects of that, but I think we have to take seriously how different factions in the struggle that is now the American story, how they perceive power and the balance of power on the national level. I think we as liberals have to be a little bit more understanding that it is actually good to have competition. So when people say, well, oh, wouldn't it be great if Democrats just keep on winning endlessly and we have a permanent Democratic majority? No, we actually should want to have a second party in this country that is responsible, that is able to check our most problematic excesses. And I think, too, about this is maybe a different conversation, but uh, Richard Hanania, who maybe some folks follow on Twitter, he has a really interesting Substack. but he had this piece which got a lot of play and Ross Douthat wrote about it in one of his columns where he basically argues that liberals dominate everything or most things, institutions, organizations, that certainly when it comes to media and corporations and so on. And one of the reasons he laid out was basically, in effect, because liberals aren't necessarily as tied to traditional institutions or even traditional religion, that they essentially have to find other ways to express their desire for meaning and that that is more likely to come out in politics. So for them, they can be more passionate about politics and see that more intensely. And so they want to change these institutions and basically make them more liberal. And this is why most mainstream institutions in America today lean to the left. There's a whole list of what those institutions might be. But that creates this kind of imbalance. 
I want to vehemently disagree with oh, that. Oh, wow. It's, hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Second episode, folks. Yeah, yeah. Again, never just quickly on that. I mean, I do think this is a kind of narrative that's out there. And I, I want to kind of offer an alternative view of this. So I think one of the things, if we, and this is slightly born out of a geekish attention to developments in left-wing politics from the 19th century, but but the sense of the failure of the left to take, in, in the Western context, America and Europe, to take control of either the commanding heights of the economy or the state, it failed. It didn't, if we contrast, if winning was the Soviet Union, then the left you know, the hard left, if we put it in American terms, failed in the American and European context. And you have, in someone like Antonio Gramsci in the, in the Italian context, a turn to, it's and a recognition that ideas and culture kind of matter, the ruling, the ruling ideas, the idea of the ruling classes kind of idea. And so this turn to cultural production as against economic production as the primary way of doing things. At the same time, on the right, with the rise of classical economics and Hayek and everyone, there was conservatism used to be very concerned about, if I go back to someone like Coleridge or Burke, very concerned about culture, and they turned to economics. So you, it was all about economics, and we had this reduction of the human to homo economicus. And so there's this weird switch. Marx used to be about economics, and now Marxists were all about cultural production and taking over universities and doing films and this kind of stuff. And conservatives used to be very concerned about family and society and culture and literature and great books programs. Suddenly, we're all about defending free markets. It was a kind of odd switch that's gone on, you know, over this century. And I think if you look at, take my university at Duke, people talk about uh, people get very upset about the dominance of liberals in the academy. I'm like, baloney, you know, five people in a literature department and not the dominance of the university. We're a behemoth medical system. There isn't a communist or socialist or even a cultural relativist in the medical system. They're deeply committed and shaped by techno-science and libertarian commitment to free market economics. Likewise, there's not a single person who even teaches on the German social market model as a form of capitalism. It's all about a certain kind of libertarian frame of economics. So, and Duke majors, I'm afraid to say, one or two might end up working for kind of NGOs, but the vast majority of people coming out of elite institutions, what's their aspiration? They go and work for Goldman Sachs. They go and work for some consulting agency. That's the actual, they might express a couple of vaguely decolonial sentiments in their second year, but track them 10 years later, they're working in the bastions and high points of the capitalist economy. And so I think this dominance of an identitarian frame over a political economy frame is very problematic. And I think that's not the whole story, but I think it's an important bit of the story. So when we look at these cultural institutions and say they're dominated by liberals, I'm like, no, you're looking at five departments where no one takes majors. The actual majors people actually take, pre-med, business. There isn't a decolonial thought anywhere in sight. I think that there is a very problematic narrative here that's been going on. I think, look, you're right about like the hard left if we're talking about Bernie Sanders supporters, for example. But I think when I think about this cultural elite, I'm talking just people who are on the left side of the spectrum. So granted, a lot of them do work for Goldman. I mean, Mayor Pete, that's, right. wait, was it Goldman for Mayor Pete? I can't, it was, sorry, McKinsey. McKinsey. Yeah. So I feel like there is a sort of center left technocratic vibe 
And I think that still fits into the analysis because when conservatives are being fearful, they're not making careful distinctions between Mayor Pete and AOC. They see it. These are Democrats. They're all part of something called the Democratic Party. And I think from the numbers that I've seen, not just in a couple like leftist literature departments, but universities are so incredibly lopsided in terms of who votes Democrat versus who votes Republican. Now, that's a little bit different than being a leftist per se, but I think that would just be the the kind of the broader context. But I, I take your point that a lot of the folks who go through the meritocratic elite system, they aren't necessarily people who challenge structures, in part because the center left dominates so many of these institutions that you may not want to challenge structures. And we see now the rise of woke capital that corporations are basically becoming leftist in a woke way, not in an economic way, which is very convenient for them. They can offer the illusion of being progressive and you know being in with the times, the right side of history, but ultimately they're perpetuating these very unequal economic structures. Just, just like a little addendum to clarify. I'd say you're complete, exactly right. But I think that helps us reframe the conversation quite importantly. I think there is a shared enemy, if you like, in a kind of technocratic, meritocratic elitism that thinks that if I've got the right data set, I should be able to tell everyone else how to live their lives. And that has spanned, particularly since 89, but I think predates that, both left and right. And we had a kind of technocratic vision of libertarianism and a technocratic, highly individualized version of cultural politics as well. I think you can look at the kind of Bernie bros as a reaction on that on the left and a certain Trumpism and populism as a reaction against that on the right. But they actually kind of meet round the back in, in a sense the shared enemy is that technocratic meritocratic class, which has dominated both left and right. But I, I think to brand that it's the old thing of, of li- neoliberals and liberals are actually the same. They just, they apply the same analysis to different bits of the world, one to the market and one to the society. But they're actually both cultural relativists who it's all about individual autonomy. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think, but that's not a sense that somehow a certain kind of progressive liberalism dominates his cultural institutions. I think it's a certain kind of highly individualistic anthropology married to a highly technocratic, amoral view of how to make the world come out all right. And that's what's being contested, and rightly so. And go back to our previous conversation, because questions of meaning and purpose have reared themselves in a way in which that technocratic approach is seen to be wholly inadequate to. So it's not surprising we have a ideological efflorescence. But as you were saying earlier, the real question is, can we address questions of existential questions in a genuinely democratic political way? And the central commitment of democracy being, I respect the dignity of not just friends, but also strangers and enemies, that I think solving shared problems is best done through talking and arguing rather than killing and coercing. And that I think people should have some agency to be able to determine the conditions under which they live and work. And those three really are the conditions of a meaningful democratic politics. 
and need to be shared by whatever religious or ideological persuasion. And I think that's the terrifying thing, both on left and right and across religious spectrums, whether it's Christian nationalists or ISIS, is not just an ignorance of those things or refusal of those things, but a rationalization of why those three commitments are bad and need to be opposed. And that's the scary thing that I think a kind of radical commitment to democracy and enshrining the dignity of the individual talking and arguing together and that people should have agency to determine their conditions of life. That's what we need to recover. Agreed. Well, that's a great place to end. Dr. Luke Brotherton, Dr. Shadi Hamid, we got a crash course in your class and in a bunch of books. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Really honored to be with you. Faith Angle connects mainstream journalists with religion scholars and clerics. Thanks for listening.